0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School,
1: this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, another two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do this every week. We've been doing it via Zoom since March when the pandemic hit. We've got the whole crew here, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, and this is Cade Massey. We are going to go for about half an hour of the first quarter on COVID as we've been doing since March and then roll into a couple of open segments and then end with an interview in the fourth quarter, our usual interview segment. We've got Namita Kumar, who is an analyst for the Seattle Kraken and a former analyst for the Philadelphia Eagles. So she's in this small crew of people who have changed teams and changed sports over her short career and a terrific conversation here at the bottom of the show. All right, guys. We're recording on Monday afternoon. The show will go up on Wednesday. We have an ever-evolving world of COVID in front of us. I'm curious what has caught your eye over the last week.
0: Well, I can happily jump in. I've been tracking vaccinations all over the country and in Israel and the early data, and there's a lot of conflicting reports, uh, lots of good news, some bad news. What do you want to start with, good or bad?
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Let's start with some good news. We don't get right, good, good news. It
0: looks like um, antibody response is really, really strong in just about everyone. The people they've tested seem to have very, very strong antibody responses after after the second dose, in particular. Although I just spoke to an immunologist today, who said that this what what Pfizer did and Moderna are the same thing is highly unusual, which is to give the two doses so close together. Um, and they did a, that. a
2: month is the standard, right? And so uh,
0: it is now, but usually with vaccine boosters, it's four months. Okay, Um, And so the basic process is it takes about two weeks before your body responds to the vaccine. So what they decided to do was give the booster in the beginning rather than at the end of the beginning. So usually what the way generally works, and this is according to immunologists I spoke to, said you you typically vaccinate um, and then expect about two weeks before you get a response. And then as that initial response is waning, that's when you give the booster. So what we did was basically give double pumps right up front. And the reason for this is they wanted an extremely strong, quick response. But the practical um, manifestation that's our cause of this is that we might need boosters in about six months.
2: I see. Ah, interesting. So Um, the
0: good news is after after your second dose in Israel, they seem to have very strong responses. Um, A new result just came out today. They looked at 128,000 people who had who had seen who had gotten both doses, and they followed them for a week, there were 20 cases. And this is a country that's seeing about, you know, eight to 10,000 new cases a day, only about 9 million people actually live in the country. So 20 out of 128,000 over a week is about 95% less than the baseline, which is exactly what was advertised.
2: Right? That's extraordinary.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So a couple quick questions on that. What would be the rationale? Is there any reason? Is it because our bodies would overreact that they can't like, why can't they just give us one dose of extra strength version? Why does it have to be separated out? Is it because our bodies couldn't handle it? Or is it because it's better for the efficacy to spread it out?
0: It's a great question, and my is in statistics, and I have no clue.
4: <laughs> I mean, you know, the, given that it's kind of like a strong enough response that people are kind of struggling a little bit with it, you'd kind of think even heightening that response further, you might be. I mean, the trade-off is the people you're making very sick with the actual kind of vaccine response, right? That's one it of the. Could, things it it could be, in.
3: but Shane, I'm I'm starting to get. I, although Adi said that was the good news, um, mm-hmm, if hmm. I'm hearing that you need a potentially a booster in six months and mo- I, I'm not taking the over under whether I'm going to get my first shot within six months. Now, all of a sudden I might say, you know what, I'm willing to take a little bit of more downside risk on the extra strength version that has one shot version, or we're all waiting for the Johnson and Johnson one, right. which only mm-hmm. requires one shot, but who knows how long that lasts. Um, but yeah, that that's concerning to me that if boosters are required within six months, then that, you might as well call it a three dose regime needed. That's and then right. that cuts down dramatically, obviously, on the number right. of people. So mm-hmm.
0: that's the, that. So the bad news is it's not horrible news, um, but it, uh, the bad news is that there's lots of worry now about the new variants coming out of different places. And as a concern that the vaccine won't be as protective against those new variants, right. there's uh, it's hard to know. So I think that, you know, uh, Pfizer and BioNTech are claiming now nah, it'll be fine. Uh, Dr. Fauci came on and said he's a little bit worried about it. You know, Dr. Fauci saying he's a little worried. He's not a worrier. Um, is a little <laughs> is a little disconcerting.
2: <laughs> so, Adi, I thought that the that the um, manufacturers were actually a, a little less sanguine than that. I thought they had done some initial tests and found that the efficacy was dropping from you know 95, which is what we're seeing right now, to more like 50, 60 percent, something like that.
0: Uh, that data is is between zero and 30, I'm sorry, zero and three weeks. So what Pfizer claimed is by the end of your second week, you can expect an 80% reduction. And that seems to be, have been way over optimistic. If that's, maybe that's what you're referring to.
2: I'm talking about the new strains, the exposure. Oh, the to the new, new strains. No. So they've taken, what they've done is, let's just be precise. They've taken okay. the antibodies that have been mm-hmm. uh, in, developed in response to the immunization and they've Expose them to the new virus to see what the effect is, and I thought they were seeing and reporting something like 56% efficacy. I think you manifest. might be
0: talking about the the plasma. There's um, there's no, a lot of stuff. Um, no, no,
2: no, no. Because no.
0: I know that they exposed it to actual people who had recovered plasma, and they found that about half of them didn't have have any response.
2: Okay. Well, so these are also not good news. <laughs> yeah these are these are small these are smaller studies and their initial studies, but they're certainly a little bit disconcerting. Um, all right, Eric.
3: Yeah. So one of the things I did is, you know, um, I started to wonder, like, when are we actually going to know with some statistical certainty um, the uh, potential increase in deadliness or not of this new one, new virus? And so I actually uh, went to a favorite, one of my favorite websites that does a sample size calculator, and said, let's imagine the death rate is one percent for the, let's call it standard COVID nineteen, and how large a sample of patients would you need to see if it a 50% increase, which is what they're potentially talking about from one to one and a half percent, how many patients would you need to see so you had 95% power in detecting that there's actually a difference? In other words, because one, think about flipping a coin with a 1% coin, you're flipping a one and a half percent coin. Those are pretty close to each other and there's an overlapping distribution. How big a sample would you need to be able to detect that it's actually gone up? And so the, one of the
2: challenges, well, let's, let's get some intuitions here. Um, I hate to ask that because I don't have a good intuition, but let's get some intuitions. One of the additional challenges here is that there's such a rare case, right? Because yeah,
3: it that's it. Up. I'm saying it's a function of the fact that you're at the left tail of the distribution. You're going from 1% to 1.5%. Yeah,
2: so in a in thousand, favor,
0: it's, a big, it's a big increase. If it is a big detect, increase. If one you're and a half, 50. 0 to 50.0 to 50.5, you'd probably need many more
2: people. Okay. But so in this case, we've got in a thousand patients, you're talking about going from 10 to 15 cases. And so you want to know the difference. When can you tell the difference between 10 and two? How many thousands do you need before you can tell the difference between 10 and 15 cases? Yeah.
3: Correct. And the answer is, um, according to the sample size calculator, you roughly need, you're right, it, you need about 12 to 13,000. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, okay. I thought that was an interesting thing, which suggests that you know these small sample studies they have can be indicative, but maybe not statistically Significant yet. And of course, there's also the error and measurement problem that. You know, we have to be able to, I assume, sequence these samples to know factually that they're the new variant versus not. So, we, you know, we're, we're, we're questioning whether this variant versus that variant. So there's just kind of general measurement problems. But we're in the tens of thousands, which, as Adi said, that shouldn't be tremendously problematic given the number of cases we're seeing. But I think the number yeah. of, I'll call it cleanly measured cases and ones that can be tracked is part of the challenge. Yeah, almost insurmountable.
2: Well, so I've seen something on the good news front that I've seen more optimistic forecasts than than in the popular press. When people talk about when are we going to be a little bit more back to normal and Fauci saying, you know, fall and and. But on the other hand, there's been some forecasting done by a gentleman. I think i come up with his name here momentarily, but um, who looks at basically when we're going to meet. Re, reach herd immunity, given that we've got herd immunity from two different sources now. We've got the vaccination coming online, and then we have the people who have already had it. And the combination of those things is building pr- building pretty dramatically now. And so, in the U.S., he's forecasting, this is a fellow who the CDC has explicitly said, for good public information, go look at this guy's forecast. And um, I'll come up with his uh, the attribution here momentarily. But the, he says between the two we're going to be looking by really, we're going to be at like 60% in early May in his forecast. 60% have either been vaccinated or had the disease, had the virus, one of the two. And 60% is not quite, I mean, people don't know exactly when herd immunity is going to happen. It's not a threshold thing. But see in the conversation we've been having for, having for the last year, we know that the, the the contagiousness and the impact of this thing is dramatically
3: and i just want to understand whenever. uh kate is there an assumption being made that somebody who had it a year ago um can't get it again or isn't going to be uh, as viral as something and i assume He's got that's to make tr- some kind of
0: assumption what is no no, no
3: i know so i what i'm starting to worry about is is that You know, this virus is getting, quote, unquote, old enough where the repeat rate may not be as small as we think it is. And therefore, let's not count everybody in the herd immunity pile, even that has had it before. Well, I'm going to be betting against that. Um, That's just my that's just my
2: but, guess. But from a modeling perspective, well, two things. One, that's an assumption that needs to be made explicit, and I suspect he's made it explicit somewhere. But the other is it would be pretty straightforward from a modeling perspective to, to put in some leakage back into the uh, susceptible population, essentially. I don't know. The answer is I don't know what assumption he made. Let me give you some information about him. It's Yu Yang Gu, Yu Yang Gu, and the site is – COVID19 dash projections dot com. So pretty straightforward, COVID 19 dash projections dot com. And um I've seen a lot of it in various credible places. And of course that the CDC is passing him out as one of the good good public information. That's pretty, pretty validating as well. But i but it's just encouraging and it's and it's also very simple and very logical. He apparently has a good track record, at least as good nobody has a good track record. No one record has record. a good one forecasting yeah. what the impact is going to be. But I, this this idea that look, one, remember the, some of the conversations we had early on about what, what rate do we need to see in the population before we really start seeing this thing go down. And the idea is you don't need 80% to, to start getting a real drop in the impact of this thing. And so if, if you see something 60 70%, and if we see that by early spring – that's gonna be translating in I think that's gonna be translating into Well let me a ask you large.
3: let me let me ask a question, Kate. Do you see since I, I don't know who posted it, but someone posted about the virus levels like a North Dakota versus Vermont? It might have been Audie that posted yeah. it. If if that's true. Do they literally start taking vaccine away from state A and say, actually, given the likely viral load in your state or who's had it and who's been vaccinated, you don't need it anymore?
0: I'm going to I'm going to follow up with that. No, they're not doing that. And yes, should, they they? should be? Yes, yeah. they should
3: be. That's Worse my question. Than that.
0: Worse than that. They're not telling anyone outright if they if they if you've had it recently, as in really recently. They're only encouraging you not to get the vaccine and just to wait a little bit. But I'm really talking about recently. If you've had it more than three months ago, they're encouraging you to get the vaccine. That doesn't that seem right? to make sense. As no, that policy. doesn't
2: make any sense. I, I agree. Let's go back to Eric's point about state by state, which I think this is really a big one because the Yu Yangu forecast, at least the readily available ones, are U.S. wide. But of course, I mean, one of the main themes of our conversations for the last 10 months have been heterogeneity and geographic heterogeneity. And mm-hmm. this thing varies dramatically. So the stat you quoted a minute ago, Eric, came from a New York Times article but bear, and it wasn't the point of the article, but buried in that article was this observation that some people are estimating that 60 percent, six zero percent of the North Dakota citizens have had this virus. Sixty. And right. they contrast that with, say, Vermont, I think it is with yeah 10%, Vermont, 10 percent. And they talk about the difference in the impact of the vaccine in North Dakota versus Vermont, given that you just don't have as much there's there's not as much lift you get from the vaccine when such a high percentage of the population's already had that.
3: Hurt. By the way, what's interesting about that is forget political views. It was a, it's another argument about why widespread testing would have helped yeah. because it also suggests that it would have given an idea of, you know, where do you get the most ROI from the vaccine?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: I wish that had been, matter of fact, I've never heard that mentioned before. Um, actually, as a rationale, it's another rationale for testing. There's lots of others, but that's one another one.
0: Well, actually, right. I mean, I've, I don't want to beat this dead horse, but our inability to produce these rapidly, um, these cheap strip-based, inaccurate but accurate enough, widespread testing has been a just complete failure. I mean, it really a, a insane.
2: So, any any other news that you think is worth talking about right now, guys, around this thing?
3: Well, the other two I've heard, which you know. Is, you know, now there's it might get to this, especially if it goes to the, you know, booster needed this, that I'm starting to hear, well, they're not recommending it. There might be a consideration of Pfizer and Moderna. You could mix and match Um, Mm. there again. They don't know, but they don't think it's a good idea, but they're not sure. Um, Sounds fun.
4: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of hoping. I mean, of course, the the optimistic thing is really I mean, I think the big news is going to be this Johnson Johnson vaccine. If it works. Uh, you it's know, one shot, easy level. It's one shot. I mean, so many of these logistical complications just go away, right? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So we were uh, we got tweeted at uh, by an about an article that made a point that was new to me. But I looked into it and I disagreed, uh, at least about the statistical occlusion. The, the idea was that the Pfizer vaccine works better than the Moderna vaccine for the for old people. Um, and the, the if you look at it, this seems to me it, For for Pfizer, 95% effectiveness for 65 and older. But for the Moderna, it looked like it was more like 86% uh, effectiveness. But on the other hand, once you start looking at subgroups within your population, the sample sizes are way too small to start making these distinctions. That difference, by the way, is not statistically significant. Um, 86% and 95% with the sample sizes involved. Given the or original not...
3: 30,000 sample size and the number well, of we people. We have to look at it.
0: The 30,000 is a red herring. It's the number of people that is infected in the control group that matters. Um, and right. we're talking about not that many people were infected in these subcategories. So that this leads to an actually a very practical question. If you have a 85% versus a 95% in a trial, the difference is not statistically significant, though it's... I mean, as they say in economics, trending towards significance, <laughs> right? Um, it's about p values like 0.1 or so. What would you do with that information? Would you well, actually actively tell older people to choose the Pfizer over the Moderna?
4: Well, I mean, I thought. I mean, yeah, you have like to like, any, them, right? like anybody's getting some choice. Like, like who's going into like their the clinic and getting like a menu? Uh, you that they know, can they're, they're from. They are I mean, That's not happening anyway. But no, they're advertising. Uh, well, but if you're
0: eligible, you 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 can find out which shot it's t- it's it's taken. So I, I mean.
4: On an individual level, yeah, I don't. I mean, I I thought there was kind of logistical, kind of distributional concerns why we might prefer the Moderna one either anyway, because doesn't it last longer out of refrigeration? Oh, that's
0: for the suppliers. Yes, it does. Yeah.
4: No, but I mean, okay, but I mean, again, on the the buyer side, if there's a chance that Pfizer's been sitting out on the counter and is going to be less effective, I might choose (laughs) Moderna based on that more than these kind of like percentage quibbles Uh, in efficiency. I
0: think the Pfizer vaccine lasts many hours once it's been defrosted. It just can't be put out could can't be put back by any measure. That's why that's why they've
4: been. And of course, all in our incredibly decentralized kind of thing. I mean, no chance that anybody would not have followed the protocols. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) The
3: other the other thing I heard recently, which was kind of interesting, and I'm planning on doing it when I'm out in certain places there. Now, the CDC is thinking of coming out with a recommendation about double masking and that it's really um, to treat it like an obstacle course. And that even if you have an N95 or KN95, which, you know, mm-hmm. the 95 stands for something that stands for the amount of particulates at a certain micron level that gets through the mask, um, I have 100 percent plan to wear two masks now in certain situations where I'm in a place where certainly if I, I haven't, but if I were to go to a restaurant um, where there are other people, um, even to go inside, I would probably wear two masks Um as our producer just said, if I was to go to the Super Bowl, which I'd like to, um, <laughs> but I will not be, I would definitely wear two masks there. No doubt about it.
0: Well, let I, I me mean, respond. I already wear two masks, but my second mask is really an ineffective mask. It's really a, a, a cloth uh, gaiter that really keeps my first mask in place very
3: tightly. Uh,
2: so so- – Why the change in the recommendation? Is this because they've learned something or because of the new contagiousness of the?
3: I think it's because of the increased contagiousness. And I think they're also suggesting that, you know, um, we all might be waiting a little bit longer than we think for the distribution. I mean, you know, there was 20 million injections by New Year's. Well, Hmm. that's not happened. I don't even know. I think we just passed 20 million at this point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they say that we're giving a million doses a day, but it needs to be two to three million doses a day. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I think they're now saying that um, double masking is going to work even better.
2: Okay, so let's take this one step farther. Are are there recommendations on the way you double mask? Or if 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 it's double barrier, then do you want different kinds of barrier? or two of the same? You want them
4: both on top of each other. Don't wear them. Yeah. You can't
0: wear the N ninety fives are not meant to be doubled. I don't think that the advice involves those very
3: Although I have been wearing I have worn something on top (laughs) of the N ninety five.
4: So putting something else, I mean they do want you to So are you only getting 0.95 squared particularly?
3: (laughs) 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 It doesn't work that way. No. (laughs)
0: Um so my but my issue is is that if you the N ninety fives are very tight when they're when they're properly fitted. And they, they're, it's a very good seal. I don't really think you're getting anything better, um, but I think it really has to do with using these surgical masks or a lot of these just very popular fashion masks that people wear that are nice fitting and they look good. They have nice patterns. Um, I think that those those can be improved by wearing two.
2: It's two of the same. And would you wear two of the same? Or would you change them up?
4: I think two are the same. I and mean, the
0: basic two, idea is that just it's just, it just it just makes. Um yeah, and, or,
4: and plus I think uh, you know, probably there's some maybe kind of like again, the kind of more fashionable cloth ones are, are a little bit more comfortable and a little yeah. bit, you know, a little bit more adjustable. So maybe you have an N ninety five inside that that actually kind right. of basically you've still got the same comfort level, but your your kind of protection is souped up.
2: You know, there's some of these come with inserts that mm-hmm.
4: you, yeah, you it's basically I guess kind of a, a, a manual. It's a for way of getting
2: double. Yeah. yeah. Adi, you're Teaching hybrid, right? Meaning you're in the classroom. Yep, I was. I so- was supposed to be in the classroom
0: on Thursday. Here's a piece of news, actually. So I didn't actually make it into the class on Thursday, but it, because of the technology, wasn't ready in the room. It's very. It's actually quite brilliant. That allows us to do both a virtual. Uh, situation, a hybrid and a in present in class. So I get a giant screen, I can see the people who are not in the room, and I can see the people who are in the room just by looking at them. And it's all the microphones are shared. So when it's actually working, it should be a, a really a terrific improvement. But here's the, the piece of news. I asked my 22 students, and when we got together and met had class on zoom, how many are going to come? And this is what surprised me.
3: Mm. Six, this is of the ones that were assigned on a given day. You mean. No, no, no.
0: My class is too small. Everybody can come every time. Um, we have a rotation for cl- classes that are larger than
3: 24. Oh, I see.
0: So my class is small enough that everybody can come every time. We're in a very large auditorium, Steinberg-Dietrich 350. Um, it has 150 seats, and, and 22 of them are open for students to sit in. And I was uh, I asked my students how many are coming, and six said they would come. Next Thursday.
4: That, con- that confirms my basic theory that students are very excited to get back to campus. Not <laughs> yeah. necessarily excited to get back into the classroom. And I
0: actually was quite curious be- why. And 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 this is I, and I don't you know we didn't have a chance to discuss it. A couple are really excited to come back to class to, to be there in person, but mostly they just looked at me sheepishly and go nah, and they're not coming. And I, and I'm wondering <laughs> why. <laughs>
2: Well, well, we can flip it around. And Why do people want to come? And I mean, you're talking, about, I think you're talking about undergrads. And can, undergrads, yes. It so could undergrad. be possible that these these MBAs come in for shorter stretch. They've got two years and the guys yeah. who are going to graduate this spring have had more than half of their entire experience interrupted. And I'm assuming some of them just want to be in the classroom because they haven't been in, able to be in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is a misguided assumption. I mean, we're finding out right now. So Penn is beginning to teach these hybrid classes for the first time. But Adi, I raised that because you're making some decision about your face mask in the classroom. And now you've got additional considerations because you're going to lecture for say an hour and a half at a time. So comfort mm-hmm. matters. Also what's going on with your voice as you speak through this, all of us have had the experience of going up to a cash register with the map, with the mask on and having to struggle to be understood. So it's just an additional consideration for those who are going to be. Included.
0: Well, I will let you know. Um, I wasn't planning to do my full class law uh in in person even when it even when i'm there I, it's a three-hour class so i was planning to just do oh, an hour yeah. and then and then re you know reconvene uh virtually because i i can't
2: do three hours there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all right well listen guys why don't we wrap up the coronavirus conversation for the week um. Hopefully, we'll have a little bit less to talk about as we go forward and get further into 2021, and we can turn our attention more to sports, but it still has been affecting sports dramatically, and so it's important to work through the implications. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back.
3: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio. Welcome
2: back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. You've got the whole crew here. Audie Weiner, professor of statistics. Shane Jensen, professor of statistics. Eric Bradlow, professor of statistics and marketing. You slackers. And Cade Massey, professor of the practice in operations, information, and decision. All at Wharton been doing this for coming up on seven years. Enjoy you guys listening. Appreciate your jumping in. You can catch us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter. Send us questions, send us links. We had an article sent this past week, which was interesting to dig into. Um, You can also hit us up on email, Wharton.upen.edu. The email address is Wharton.upen.edu. It's kind of our mailbag. Pick up questions from you guys periodically and bring them onto the air. Always love hearing from you. However, you can reach out. Just out of the first quarter, talking about coronavirus rolling into the second quarter obviously the biggest news of the day is that super bowl is set we've got the chiefs and the bucks we've got some happy kids here on this show longtime bucks fans and longtime tom brady fan so gentlemen how did yesterday go for you it
4: was fun it was very fun i mean i i guess uh you know i, I mean i you know I, can, I of course can talk a lot about tom brady but i'm gonna surprise my uh Colleagues, perhaps here on the show, and, and, and say that I think uh, Tom Brady was not the main reason the Bucks won that game yesterday.
3: <laughs> right? Um, oh, no, no. I mean, he's.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, again, I'm not gonna. I, I don't think his second half was quite. I mean, you know, so, two of those interceptions were essentially just long punts. But, uh, but, um, but yeah, no, I mean, he played excellent in the first half. But really, it was uh, the thing that impressed me the most or surprised me the most was the uh, Bucks defense and the ability to kind of get pressure on Green Bay. And to not get burned by it, basically in the secondary, um, and I mean, I I I don't necessarily think they're going to be able to replicate that against Kansas City, which is an even better team. But it's pro, you know, it it gives me some hope, certainly, that they'll be able to kind of do a similar trick on since uh, in Kansas City.
2: Can we hear more of your analysis or anybody's analysis on how the the Bucks went about doing that? Because you know, the, the pack had one of the strongest offenses statistically this year. <clears throat> Everybody talks about the season that Rogers had. Everybody loves the offense. LaFleur is trying to get off the ground there for the last two seasons. They seem to really be clicking and, um, I and mean, they really did a number on those guys. Um, and so I'm curious for those of you who may know the bucks better, or if you have any particular take on how and why that happened.
3: Well, I can just give an opinion and to say that, um, I think this will happen also against the Chiefs as well, to the ability they can. The Bucks are not going to allow themselves to get burned on a 60-yard bomb. They're just not. And we know, all, I mean... Shay knows as well, that's been their Achilles heel the last two, three seasons, was that they can get pressure up front, their linebackers are excellent, but their secondary is getting absolutely torched on the deep ball. So what they're going to do is, they've got a really fast team, a team that hits hard and a fast that can create turnovers. So what their new strategy seems to have been the last seven or eight games of the season is make, make someone else, even Green Bay, make them have a 15-play drive, maybe a holding call, Maybe a penalty, some sort of penalty. Otherwise, maybe they can turn get a fumble, make the other team stay in front, hit the guys hard, and run to the football. And so that's what the Bucks are doing now. And so um, the Packers—they didn't get any really big plays, and I think that's going to be their strategy against Kansas City. The problem is, Kansas City has players that can turn 10-yard receptions yeah. into 60-yard receptions. Yeah. But that's right. your only hope. Your only hope against Kansas City is that 10-yard receptions stay at 10 yards. You mm-hmm. don't miss tackles because they also have the guys that can burn you deep. And I, I think that's what the Bucks are going to do. They're going to make them methodically drive down the field, hope for one or two either turnovers or mistakes or possessions. And I think, you know, Tom, they, Tom Brady, they asked him directly, what kind of game do you think it is? And he goes, he's ready for a shootout at the O.K corral this could be like a bucks this could be like an eagles patriots super bowl you may get a score 40 something to 40 something and which team makes one or two mistakes could make the difference because i don't think the bucks are going to have trouble scoring against the chief's defense i do not
2: you don't so you think brady's still got enough to to deliver that kind of
3: well here's the thing if this tom brady epitomized what i've said from the beginning it just happened all in one game about um, you know, what happens to old people, sometimes old players act old and sometimes they have the good day. Tom Brady saw it in one half and the second half. Um, I think he uh, he got tired as the game went on. I think he was not as patient. I think he didn't get rid of the ball as well. I think he was more susceptible to pressure in the second half than he was in the first half. And um, he had a great first half. I mean, almost flawless. Every drop ball was. Fournette dropped a few. Uh, Godwin dropped a few. Essentially, he should have completed ninety percent of his passes for two hundred and fifty yards and three touchdowns in the first half. He had a great first half. The second half, he looked like the bimodal Brady, the bimodal forty-three-year-old. some. He looked like <laughs> Drew Brees in the second half. How about that?
2: Oh, do these guys drink, I mean, you know, if you had to perform at your peak for three straight hours physically, you'd be taking, you know, you'd be drinking coffee, you'd be drinking power, eating power bars. I wonder what kind of in game refueling these guys do. That's that we've never had that sports. Science oh, it's
4: Tom Brady's avocado ice cream hasn't been open about that says the key to his. Success. Uh-huh.
2: You know, uh-huh. we had this conversation last week about it. how could we have observed the decline in Drew Brees's game quantitatively or objectively? if what could we conjure some measures that we would just track and we were talking over the course of a season but now you have me wondering about what measures you could track like in game so again it starts feeling like it starts feeling like the baseball the the the, the perennial baseball question of when to pull the pitcher but and you you've could got know all this right aden-
3: you yeah. could know, like now in football, you could look at the velocity of his throws. Well, let's
2: hold on. Let's distinguish between those that you could that are theoretically available versus we know we're available. So velocity, for some reason, the NFL always held off on sharing velocity numbers on passes. Well,
4: right. I mean, I think it's also you've got a problem of like there's like an observation bias. I mean, so Bruce Arians is kind of. Nicely through his kind of offensive philosophy, I think, giving us more observations on Brady than a typical quarterback would have. We don't have a lot of data on Drew Brees's decline on long passes because you know it's kind of recognized relatively quickly in practice he can't do that anymore, and so they tailor their entire offensive okay. But that's that's, against avoiding that. Whereas the Patriots kind of trusts in Brady's arm, and so he's going to have like he a ton of passes downfield where you're going to kind of see, be able to evaluate that more. But
2: Shane, that, that just suggests there's another, there's another data stream here, which is what, what choices are, is the team making? Definitely. What are they, are they even trying to throw along?
0: Right. Left? Yeah. See, see, It's not so easy. I mean, because uh, in baseball, you know, this thing called the fastball where they have to throw it as hard as they can. And, and they do that often throughout a game and you can measure it in football. The goal is to so get hold on. The ball- 10, hold on.
2: Hold on. Hold on. Just a little quick yeah. side. Have n't we learned over the last couple of years that it's not quite it's not quite as hard as they can like aren't these pitchers trying to back off just a little bit? Just well, there
0: to... is a bit of that, and they they they, they do that, but it's 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 uh,
2: it's within a you know a very. Yeah, no, small, I, I, you know. I I get it, but this I think that is an observation that came out of an interview we did. In but time. think
0: about think about in football, right? So the goal is to get the ball to the receiver, and that's a timing problem, right? So you need to throw it exactly as hard as you need to, not faster or slower. And and so what does this mean? How many. Throws throughout a game are genuinely being thrown like at a at a, at a pace that you can Adi, actually this use is, this to is measure the, that.
2: This is the beautiful thing of the system that we're conjuring here. Everything will be contextualized. So you've got the career of Brady's passes, and so you would instantly know how that particular pass compared to what he's done historically. You could even drop it into situations. So. On a 20-yard out, this is what we've seen. We've seen 400 okay. of them career. Well, you can do
3: more than that, Kate, if you, in theory, like this year in the Big Data Bowl theory, if you have where the quarterback is and you have where the receiver is and you have where the defensive player is, conceptually, I mean, they've measured expected completion percentage. You could track that time to- or yards per gain. You could track that over the course of a game. You could see whether it's true that older players degrade, not just so they have week-to-week variation, but they have have more within game variation that's an imperial if you could build such a system which they're getting to you could test that hypothesis
2: yeah and you know i mean this is totally anecdotal but i I, you know brady delivered it was late in the game maybe fourth quarter they had a third and long and he had this diving throw across the middle that he just stepped up and gunned it in there and so that was you know maybe there's still like these moments where they can step up but anyway i'm just continuing to fantasize we had these data they would help our understanding if we had, if we had them even more readily available, but they would have to be presented in the right way and contextualized. And I suspect this is where we're going, but it would certainly help us understand um, player performance. One of the things I think we'd see is that there's a lot of variation and you were going to see variation. There's normal variation. Right. And what you're looking for is abnormal variation. Well, let me ask
3: you a question. Let's take the other game, the uh, chiefs bills game. Um, did you see any variation in Patrick Mahomes play? All I saw was a guy throwing every ball great. That's (laughs) what I saw. And so that's my concern in the game. It's, look, the best Tom Brady that we can get at age 43 can still play extraordinarily well. Can he do it for 60 minutes good enough to beat Mahomes, who (laughs) does not seem to make particularly bad plays? Or if he does make a bad play, it gets him jacked up to play super Mahomes so that's my concern mm. it's not that the top end of Brady's not high enough I just don't think it'll be enough during the entire 60
4: yeah game. and I mean you know I mean I think the Bucks were able to have success against Green Bay twice you know this year because they were able to kind of stop the run and I think that does kind of change a lot of Green Bay a lot of Green Bay scheming success seems to be kind Correct. of you know establishing the run and then allowing you know Rodgers to kind of launch a deep on run run pass options and stuff like that so that helped against rogers and they you know were able to kind of minimize the effect of Devonte adams but i mean that kc offense is like oh well you know it, it would be an amazing defensive game if they could take away the run and take away tyreek hill well, here's what they then can you've got do, kelsey and I, you've got like three
3: other receivers I think, and hartman whatever i think this is what you can do if you're the Bucks. i think you can take away the following two things you can take away the deep pass and you can take away the run now the question becomes, what happens on screens? What yeah. happens on middle balls? What happens on reverses where guys are over-pursuing? Because, again, with Kansas City, three or four explosive plays that don't have to come off 50-yard plays and don't have to come off big runs, that could be 21 to 28 points right there. And against every other team, those are three 20-yard gains. And against Kansas City, it's so that's my concern. But I will say, I'm agreeing with you, Shane, the Bucks defense – If they win this Super Bowl, It'll be because of this defense. I'm not saying Brady. I'm not saying he's Peyton Manning in his last year. I'm not saying that he's a lot better than Peyton Manning was in Peyton Manning's last year,
4: which but, is good because that Bucks defense, as much as we're lauding them, is nowhere. No, I mean, no, that, nowhere that, near as. That good. 2015 Broncos defense is one of the all-time defenses.
3: Exactly. But I, I yeah. Do I see a now? But this was another question I was going to ask. You know, I just looked on Massey buddy. I, I, I think it's up to date, but maybe not. Um, it had Kansas City as a 1.6 favorite against uh tampa bay on a neutral field
2: it's not updated yet come on give gotta give us another gotta give all us right a, well whatever all right. So
3: maybe it changes a little bit but it's not going to change that much okay my question more had to do with you guys are the guys on priors mm-hmm. and so brady had already been announced to be on the box but we hadn't observed any games yet you could have bet on the kansas city to win the super bowl with seven to one odds and the Bucs were 16 to one. So my question to you prior guys are Is this nuts that the Bucks are only a three, two, three point underdog here when the prior odds before the season started were seven to one and sixteen to one, which trust me is a much greater implied odds than a three point, two point spread in the game. That was my question for you. Yeah, I,
4: I I agree. I mean, I think you know, if I if I was to try and kind of take the kind of emotional fandom aspect out of it, I would consider this kind of a mismatch. I mean, not you know, this is probably I would I would assume that this is going to be maybe the St. Louis Rams, the original Brady Super Bowl. Probably there was a greater point spread, but I, I mean, it was KC, fourteen. I, KC, I think, should be favored by you know more like you know the six seven point range in the Super Bowl. In my opinion. I mean, it could be just collectively Vegas is tired of losing money betting against Brady, and that's what's kind of or or what. But I mean, I I think you know, kind of the analytics would say that this is not, you know, it's not a, 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 a I think a matchup well, in the one. To two. So hold on. no,
2: the, no, the analytics, the analytics. Remember, guys, that that the Chiefs have been uh, underperforming.
4: Yeah, for the yeah. last
2: half of this season, and, mm-hmm. and, and maybe even before then. I mean, they've they had something like eight straight games without covering until mm-hmm. this weekend, mm-hmm. and. I've really been on it about that's just not the way championship teams look. And we can tell stories about, well, they'll play better when it matters. And they still got the number one seed, all that kind of stuff. Those all seem like stories. That's just not the way championship teams look. And then they go out and do what they did yesterday to the bills. And you start wanting, you and, you know, I told you about the analysis that Rufus ran a couple of weeks ago about historically coaches, who who coaches well better against good teams and work who whose coaching ability varies the most by the quality of the opponent? Some coaches actually coach up when they're playing better teams. And the the leader in that particular analysis is Andy Reed. And it and you know, some people say, well, he just shows what he has to show. And when he when he plays a tougher team, he's gonna, you know, pull out a little bit more and they'll actually get it done. And sure enough, that's what they look like on Sunday. Now, whether we're just getting pulled in and snookered, I don't know. But all that's to say, Shane, the numbers. The Chiefs haven't been they haven't been that far out of the league on on these power rankings this year, and so that's one of the reasons you're not seeing.
3: Yeah, I was I wasn't actually disputing because I I even been I've been the whole second half of the season saying I don't think Kansas City looks that great, um, but I was just purely comparing what I'll call whether it's Massey Peabody FPI et cetera – these like two three point spread just comparing it to the prior odds, and that does well, mean. I I was just saying that was an interesting thing to look at and to say. I mean, yeah, the rational explanation: Kansas City did underperform during the regular season. They didn't underperform on Sunday.
2: Eric, one of the one of the. I'm curious now. I we've never done this analysis. We've talked about it, but I don't know what translates into. Let's call it a six percent chance of winning the Super Bowl versus a sixteen percent chance. Let's just call it that. What power ranking? in points difference would produce those differences in winning the super bowl i don't have a good intuition for that you're talking about winning you know playing 16 regular season games getting a seed making it through the playoffs well I don't know it, what the well
3: here's is. my intuition you guys tell me if this is bad mathematics let's just say it we're seven to one and 14 to one which is two to one right yeah two to one and so um it's, it's kind of what we in marketing, and maybe this is the wrong analogy, called the IIA principle. Like if I'm going to directly compare Kansas City to the Bucks, and it's two to one, what does it matter who the other teams are? So if it's two to one, it's two to one. And therefore, in the Super Bowl, what's the point spread that corresponds to two to one? And I think, I think, let me just, wait, wait, let me finish my logic. If that logic is right, I think you're in the shame category of somewhere around a six to seven point spread. And it would say, what does it matter who the other teams are? It's two to one. It's two to one
2: it's somebody somebody should have I, I should, i'm not smart enough to have an intuition for this but it's not clear to me i could be wrong i definitely could be wrong it's not clear to me that two to one on a game equates to two to one more likely to win this to get to the super Bowl. and it's more
4: two to one before the start of the season i mean i don't think no anybody no i'm would... comparing
3: pre i understand i'm comparing i'm, I'm already qualifying on that but yeah. i'm just trying to say i'm just trying to take Cade's direct question and say if we took the seven to one and 16 to one before the season, and you're right, it's not the same as winning a given game. But I'm saying if those odds are meant to re- represent relative strengths, like in a you know we Well they're them, not.
2: You know, That's uh, the thing. They're not. I mean, they're they're the probability of making it to the Super Bowl or probably of winning the Super Bowl is different than the relative strength. I believe, but I don't. I know. It I don't would have make that sense matter. for
3: it to be. I'm just trying to give a ballpark. Po- I, I could yeah. give a argument that it would imply roughly two to one, but I I'm all, with all the caveats and that would imply to me a three point or two point spread, whatever it's going to turn out to be at the end seems quite small to me, but I mm-hmm. I'm, I'm agreeing with all of the comments you've made Cade about my approximation. It's not even the odds of the thing you're saying it is. Those are all true.
2: guys. what else did we learn on Sunday? Uh, the Josh Allen, for example. So I got a text from a colleague of ours and a good buddy. who's like, you know, I'm not on this Josh Allen train. And he was a bit of a breakout star this year. He's been ascendant since he came into the league three years ago, getting better every year. And there's a lot of excitement around him. He did not look good. And he, frankly, I don't think he looked particularly good against the Ravens either. Now that was in tough weather conditions for passing, but you, if you only saw him at the end of the year, it's a little bit like, you know, bills, are you sure you want to buckle up to that one? So what do you, what, what is your take and what do we know about Josh Allen after we've seen we being too hard on him, he's still just a third-year player.
3: Well, another question becomes, I'm going to answer your question, my view, but I'm going to answer it in a more statistical-looking way. Is it possible that we can't have a unidimensional strength parameter, that there isn't how good is Josh <laughs> Allen? That we have to answer the question, how good is Josh Allen against non-playoff teams or playing teams at a certain part of the distribution? And then how good is Josh Allen when playing against the elite teams? And so it could be that there's a multidimensional ability scale. Like, for example, I think we all agree if you want to win a lot of games in the regular season, Lamar Jackson is fantastic. Now the question becomes, is Lamar Jackson good? It's kind of like a quantile regression. How yeah. good is Lamar Jackson against the upper tail of the distribution? How good is yeah. Josh Allen against the upper tail of the distribution? And so um, – And how
4: how kind of one-dimensional their specific games is versus not. I mean, you know, it, it's – it's uh, you know, I mean, you know, Josh Allen is clearly kind of a mobile quarterback with pretty impressive accuracy. Lamar Jackson is the most mobile quarterback we've ever seen perhaps – with less accuracy um, and which one would you kind of trust going in the future? Cause they're both, I mean, both teams are talking about like, you know, should we be starting to talk well, about me, extending these well, guys? Let me frame it so, so hold in,
2: add, real quick. Let me just note that th- their relative accuracy is a knowable thing. This is, this is yeah. now a measured, um, Performance yeah. metric in the NFL, and I don't even know if that's true. I, I don't. Uh, Josh Allen this is, past year. I mean, but, but again, Josh,
4: Josh Allen has changed a lot over time. So well, let me yeah. let
3: me let me give you. you let me, believe gonna, this
4: kind of outbreak You know what he's been doing recently compared yeah. to what he was doing
3: early. I'm going to yeah. make a rubber meets the road question, and we'll see what you guys think. Sorry. So right now you're the Jacksonville Jaguars. Okay, let's imagine the Buffalo Bills offered you a straight up trade. Of Josh Allen for the number one pick. Would you rather have Trevor Lawrence. And his potential upside or potential downside in high variance. You don't know. Or do you rather have Josh Allen.
2: Do we have a. Do we have their contracts as well. Or do you want to set that Well
3: aside? Josh Allen's what in the second third year of his contract. I mean, that, that, that,
2: that's a big thing
3: for me. No no it's but like, all right. So yeah, let's, let's take a contract aside. out of it. Let's take, take that contract. out of it. Is, which would you rather have. I'll give you an example. I even put in our rundown. Here's a guy who I was super impressed with this year. Would you rather have Justin Herbert? Yeah. Or Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields? Yeah, it's it's, it's not obvious question. to me.
2: It's such a good
4: question. Uh, uh, I I personally would take the guy that set the record, the rookie record.
3: Justin Herbert. Her- yeah, Herbert, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, th- th-
4: I any- I don't
2: know. I don't know by the way. So I I I won we should all recognize we don't know off the top of our heads, mm-hmm. and this is plus there's a lot of good information to have. But certainly, my intuition, Eric, is that I'd rather have the number one pick than Josh Allen. Um, that's my intuition. Um, but I, I, I realize that's not a very informed intuition. And then Herbert, I mean, this is a whole new thing. I mean, people are saying this is one of the best rookie seasons we've seen, and and. Going into his senior year, people talk a lot about Herbert. But coming out of his senior year, they didn't. And so it was quite unexpected, and we're still kind of catching up on it.
3: Let me ask you another question, which is related. It's another one I put in the rundown because I know he's now available. Just for the next five years, and let's ignore contract for a second, would you rather have Matthew Stafford or – Trevor Lawrence, or Justin Fields. Your goal Hmm. is to maximize your chances of winning a Super Bowl in the next five years. I'm not looking for a franchise quarterback for 20 years because no one's going to play like Brady for 20 years. Let's say five years is a reasonable time frame. Forget their contracts. By the way, Stafford doesn't have a bad contract. By the way, let me just comment on that for a quarterback. I
2: mean, let, let's just acknowledge that uh, we can only do so much of these forget your contracts stuff because it's just pure fantasy land. And, and with Stafford, especially, like the contracts I'm trying are to I'm trying to relevant. say what's if the... if if,
4: I, if, the, if the objective function is optimizing your probability of winning the Super Bowl in the next two to three years, I think it's Stafford. clear you would take Matthew Stafford. Yeah, I agree. Out of yeah. over all those, but guys. not five
2: five years are making it tougher, not five years, not it not franchise,
4: tough, right? not for the future of your franchise. Yeah, I'd love to it's see. A- Stafford
2: play on a good team, he, I mean,
4: and I, 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 you know, honestly, that guy exactly. I that guy deserves to go to a team with a win now kind of strategy. He deserves to be the Tom Brady of next year, walking okay, so into a team with a win now strategy.
2: What are the what by what metrics are we making? If you had to do this quantitatively, how is it going to stack up? Like, wh- what is what is what is Herbert flashing so nicely on? And whenever we talk about Stafford's career, what is it that we can go to to say this is what shows that quantitatively? And But the, the the danger, of course, is that it's all influenced by context. Yeah. And he, Stafford's numbers, these quarterback numbers are never independent of the team they're on. And poor Stafford's been saddled with the Lions and dodgy head coaches for years.
4: Yeah, but- I mean, unfortunately, you could argue that affecting the numbers either way. Like, maybe he's put up some of these gaudy kind of passing yardage numbers because he's, you know, he, spends, he spent his entire NFL career, you know, trying to catch up to the other team. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, I, you know, again, if I could have any model I would want, it would really be something like, you know, um, given this particular situation of the throw, what were the expected number of points added or what was the expected uh, completion percentage? And again, I don't have the data on Herbert, but let me just comment. I saw tons of plays this year because I saw him play the Bucs, but I saw him play other teams where I'm like, how did this guy do that? I mean, how was this throw? How did he escape and then reset himself? Yeah. And to me, I and mean, not just the aggregate statistics, but I would want to compare them on the distribution of, like, let's say, expected points added per play. And I think yeah, he and would I mean come I would, out very I, I think, well.
4: Again, given the best data, most infinite data in the world, I would want something kind of like you know the more sophisticated basketball models that we're sort of seeing where you they're they're evaluating and kind of an expected points or whatever basis not just you know like a particular action like how accurate a throw was but also the decision making that went into that when he when he decided to throw was he did he actually pick out the best option out of all the available options, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, Rogers, for example, yesterday made some amazing throws, but people were observing even before it kind of fell apart at the end that he was also missing some wide open guys, which is sort of like you know for Aaron Rodgers a little bit uncharacteristic. Right. So that, the other that's,
2: you're, yeah. that's specifically connected to research that Brian Burke. Uh, did a couple of years ago when the motion tracking just became available. One of the first things he did was kind of the first step towards a better quarterback model.
4: Yeah. And I'm kind of, I was referencing the basketball kind of work as people like Luke Barn and kirk Goldsbury were doing kind of like, you know, the the second by second kind of evaluation of change and po- yeah. expected before, points added. Before we but get really, so specific, Eric, just I just, yeah. I just want
2: to point out that your EPA is a, is a team level stat. And that's what people end up doing when they look at quarterbacks. They, to some extent, they kind of throw up their hands and say, look, We can look at some quarterback numbers and we will like completion percentage above expected is one of the strongest ones. But we also just need to look at some offensive numbers because the quarterbacks are so important to the offense. If you look at something like expected points added when that guy's in the game, then you're, especially when that guy's throwing the ball, then you're going to get real close to his contribution.
3: Yeah. Just before we get into a specific choice of play by the Packers in the game, um, which I think, you know what I'm going to talk about them kicking a field goal. Um, I just want to say one other thing, if we're still relating college players was did you guys see that Brett Favre said he would take Devonta Smith over Trevor Lawrence?
2: No, I'm not interested in what Brett Favre says. By the way, no, the reason. I mean, he, come on.
4: I mean, got, I'm interested in what he have to say, but I'm happy he's not running my team. All
3: right, <laughs> I'm just telling you.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, it's there's I mean, no he way. Did... Well, come, on. Yeah. I'm sorry. Tell me the ways that which is because wide receiver performance is. More I think he's saying that
3: he his belief is the Jaguars have an adequate quarterback right now and it, he's this is what he said it's not obvious he's he's is not Minshew? Yeah, he's not thrilled with Lawrence and he thinks <laughs> Devontae Smith could be Jerry Rice wow Okay, so I, mean, me, I but I, I mean I, I don't I don't I, I
4: was when when you said that I'm like did they sign an adequate quarterback and I just didn't hear about it who is he talking about
2: he must have been talking about Minshew right
4: yeah I guess
2: so that it's an interesting question It's like when do we give up on guys or when have we seen enough of those guys because he started out gangbusters then he gets hurt and he's looked you know he's looked less gangbustery for sure yeah but I mean. It, it's just one of the most fascinating questions and and some folks have these models. These are exactly what you need. You need these Bayesian models.
4: No. And, where, and I mean, I'm, I'm not where, I,
2: where you, you collect data a little bit and you update and you've got this continuous updating and you're comparing across QBs because we're kind of trying to do that all the time. We're just doing it informally. We probably got to pull some folks up. There are a few people who've got these little continuously updated Bayesian models and quarterback performance, but, um, Anyway, it would give us a little basis for this conversation. I'd love to know what they say about Minshew, what they say about um, some of these other guys. All right, guys, that has been the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio.
2: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every week here on SiriusXM. Got the whole crew here coming to you via Zoom. Audie Weiner, Eric Radlow, Shane Jensen, and this is Cade Massey. Rolling into the third quarter, we're going to do just a little bit more football because, as the producer tells us, we've only got two weeks left. Plus, there's still there's still uh, st- stuff to, to 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 grind through. Um, two really interesting things that we just ended on, uh, and one we didn't get to: this question of Devonte Smith and the value of a wide receiver, because ver- he just blew everybody away increasingly as he went through the season, versus a a quarterback what do we you guys what do we know about drafting quarterbacks versus wide receivers what do we know about the value of quarterbacks versus the value of I mean if this guy's Jerry rice how does that compare to being i don't know Matt stafford it I,
0: mean, seems I do to think- me that what I hear is that there's just way more compression in wide receiver in terms of wins added or whatever the measure that is used the equivalent of war that's used for football than the variance you expect to see among the among quarterbacks so mm-hmm. Even if you got a a 75th percentile quarterback, you're probably getting way more value than getting a 95th or even 99th percentile wide receiver. That's just my Mm -hmm. guess.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, And increasingly, we have this kind of player level evaluations available, and you just see much greater spread on quarterbacks. They just have a much bigger impact on the game. They're directing the game. They have the ball every time. A receiver... Even Devontae Smith is not having as big an impact
4: on the game. Yeah, He's and I mean, I, I think the only argument you could have for a wide receiver somehow over a quarterback, if you were in the need of both, um, is that like a wide receiver, I think, you know, can make a more immediate impact typically in, in the yeah. NFL than a quarterback. Yeah. So, I mean, you yeah. know, if Jacksonville's priority was winning the Super Bowl like next year, maybe taking a wide receiver and then signing somebody like Matt Stafford would somehow be – better objective than getting Trevor Lawrence at the same time, Jacksonville should think farther ahead than that and definitely take Trevor Lawrence.
2: So, so Bradlow, if you're, if you're urban Meyer and you have, I'm assuming urban's going to have control over the draft uh, and you want Devonte Smith sitting there at number one, what are you going to do?
3: Oh, absolutely. I would trade it. So you trade down. Um, I don't think any, I think everyone thinks Lawrence is going to be one fields, probably two. There's even debate whether other quarterbacks could go quickly after that. And by the way, I haven't heard anybody even say maybe Miami, because Miami maybe is set at quarterback, maybe with Tua and that bring merging back Tua with his wide receiver, Devonte Smith, both Alabama <laughs> guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Miami doesn't take Devonte Smith at three, I've seen, you know, he's not going at 20, but I've seen 7 to 10, somewhere like that. So if you're my, if you're a Jacksonville, you could trade back from 1 to 3 or 4 and possibly get another first round or a second rounder, etc. You can get a huge amount of value for that. As a matter of fact, I still think I'm not as huge a Trevor Lawrence guy as some people are. I think I would trade back if I was Jacksonville.
2: Mm-hmm what about Deshaun Watson? He's a player we haven't talked about. Matt, Matt Stafford is now on the market, which is amazing. For all we know, Aaron Rodgers is going to be on the market. But Deshaun Watson has been on the market. And people think highly of him. He's, you're not going to get the benefit of the rookie on contract. He's just going to be coming out of that. But he's a pretty proven commodity at the most valuable oh, yeah. position in sports.
4: No, I mean, you know, again, like I would trade at least two first-round picks for him. Mm-hmm. no questions asked. I don't even you know I mean I I, I think there's only a very small subset of teams that wouldn't make that trade you know the ones that have already Patrick Mahomes or whoever but I mean he's a top five quarterback in the NFL and I think will be for the next five years at least
2: so when you say two first round picks, we could just say well, in expectation this is the 16th and the 48. There's under six, two two 16s. This year's 16 and next year's 16. If you were at the top of the draft, would yeah, you trade you're, two- Yeah, if
3: you're um not maybe who's who's after Jacksonville? I forget who's second right now. Jets. Jets. Come on. The Jets. the Jets. Yeah, if you're the <laughs> Jets, do you thank Do you trade the number <laughs> 2 pick for uh, Deshaun Watson?
4: Yeah. Of course. Yeah. One. He like plays like an he he he, he real, he's like the He's like the number one draft choice that actually happened, you know? I mean, like, you know you're going to get a good quarterback. I <laughs> I mean, he's, I,
3: know I know. And he's, he's young. Or and, he's young but, and, and he's, he's can, young. Yeah. But, but I mean, again, I don't, I mean, again, I don't
4: be, really know how to put it in. I, I, there's not a lot of press into putting in terms of picks because what talent like that becomes available. Right. At the, his, his point is trier, you, you need but, a truly, like, epic which, kind of Shane, organizational one of the snafu one of the, for even to
2: be – a piece, that you, a piece that you need for that to be the right answer is that top-tier quarterbacks after their rookie contract are underpaid. Because if you have to pay him as full value, then there aren't any advantages to have him on the roster. You just go to the you go to the draft, you get a guy who, in expectation, the, the rookie cap is so suppressed that in expectation Every player drafted through the first, I don't know, two, three rounds, except for running backs, are positive expected value prospects. Right. So, so but but most of us have the intuition that a Deshaun Watson is worth a first round pick, a high first round. Now, the number one pick, many people would trade the number one pick that can only be the case if these top tier quarterbacks are somehow underpaid. The free agent market isn't giving them their full value. And I think that's probably true. Yeah, and I mean but- he's
4: already signed to a long-term deal. He, you know, he and Patrick Mahomes both kind of signed long-term deals, basically. It's a lot of, of money.
2: It's a lot of money, and it, it is what a lot you. Can money to commit. But it's the
4: exact money you would, I think, want to commit because you know, I mean, again, uh, as you sort of said, I mean, you know, I, it, it's hard to put a value on that kind of level of quarterbacking play at that age where he can do it for another decade for your team.
2: It's hard to put on it, but really these GMs need
4: to to do it.
2: And we don't observe it. We say this is a free market and it is a free market mostly, but there are some, there are some irregularities here and there. And I think that the quarterback is kind of, you don't see many quarterbacks leave and that suggests. Yeah. You don't see
4: quarterbacks of his level hit free agents. I mean, like I think Kirk cousins, he's probably the best quarterback to actually like be kind of a free agent. At that, like at a little bit of a younger age, then you know, I yeah, mean, that's right. obviously not the right comparison set, but that's the best one I can come up well, with. It's
2: a new world when these guys yeah. can force trades like that at that point in their career. It's really interesting. Uh, other, other on the football front, guys, some really dicey calls yesterday. I mean, Eric, your your Bills. I mean, McDermott, who's like the analyst darling, and, they, and they're they're kicking field goals against the Chiefs. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's just, not just once, but twice. I mean, really something else. But then the one that really blew up football Twitter was the Packers. And y'all blew up my phone on this one as well. Packers down eight, fourth and eight from the eight. Three minutes left, was it? No, two minutes, about 2.15. 2.15. Okay. And they kicked the field goal rather than take one last step.
3: So let me actually point out. So I was blowing up about this. Until I actually went to – I forget if it was Eric Eager or it was Ben Baldwin, et cetera. Uh, It's actually from a – Win probability perspective, it's almost equal kicking the field goal versus oh, it's about
0: 1.5 percent better to kick. I saw a I mean, to, to to 1.5 to go, but it sounds like a small amount, but your chance of winning is really small too. So, okay. in, increasing a small number by 1.5 percent is something you want to do, and also it depends very heavily on the assumptions that you make about winning in overtime. Uh, if you make it 50 then it's then it's not such a great deal. If you make it, if you think of the Green Bay, maybe it's not right to do so. It's much better, potentially much better in overtime. Because really, what they're doing is, if you're going for it on fourth and eight, is you're you're really trying to get that overtime. That's the point, because you're not going to win it outright. If you kick it and get the field goal, then you're then you have to stop. But then you're playing for the win with the
4: touchdown. Yeah. So. yeah and, I, and I mean, I think most of the kind of I, I think most of the reasons it doesn't look so bad is that fourth and eight is a hard, hard you know, kind of, do, that's yeah. a that's a hard play to kind of on have, average, but with potentially average, the best quarterback in the, in the Aaron Rodgers. You know? And you also if you if you had had sort of in, in your mind that you were going to go for it on fourth down anyway, maybe on third down, you know, you would have had a different play call on third down mm-hmm. or a different mm-hmm. play execution on third have down. Ran it in. That would have made that I mean, that was watching a lot. Yeah, He would have run that ball. Closer. in. But. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, most people are kind of getting after Rodgers in retrospect, because I mean, he could have made his life a lot easier on that fourth down by either scoring on third down or at least getting very close to scoring. I on thought the
3: down. part that surprised me the most was looking at the fact that again, not Aaron Rodgers, but the marginal probability of scoring on fourth and eight from the eight is only about 22, 23%. So already you have to convert that play. You have to convert the two point play. And let's remember um, the goat is then getting the ball back with two minutes and five seconds. All, and assuming you get this 0. 0.23 times the probability of converting the two, yeah. giving the ball back to Brady with two minutes left on the clock three timeouts who's to say he's not going to drive down the field and even well if that's true
0: anyway that both sides of the equation yeah that and you got that... brady starting much deeper in his own territory does that matter
4: yes and i mean you would be no, requiring uh, at that at that point you would be requiring brady to actually get a field into field goal range as opposed to just get a first down which is all he needed to do yeah. under the kick scenario. So you know, it it's it, it's it's a complicated calculation. Um and I think the P, the part that people are probably most reacting to as far as you know using baseline probabilities is Aaron you know, your it's, yeah, it's Aaron
3: Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers and
4: quarterbacks. But the other issue is you
0: know, Green Bay was toast no matter what. I mean, it had a maybe an 8 to 9% chance in either case.
2: Well, this yeah. is the thing. It's like I think <laughs> we 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 sometimes co- coaches, I mean, my advisor Dick Thaler has this concept of sudden death aversion. He thinks coaches don't want to do something. Mm-hmm. To, they, they kind of extend the game. Even if it lowers the win probability, they don't want to do something that will effectively end the game before they have to.
0: But this yeah. seemed weird because this I'm not saying wasn't saying good psychology. No matter what, they were still going. Yeah, it still had to stop them going down.
2: Yeah, they would, they, they, that's right. But they, that's right. And I think this is one of the compelling rationales behind the decision to, to go for it is that – you get another chance. If you stop them, you'll get another chance. So you have two chances to tie the game. Um, But you see this, I mean, McDermott had some of this as well. You know, you go down at the end of the first half and you, you, you don't want to do that without getting some points. And it's just this kind of weak. It's not win probability maximizing, it's like you're managing some kind of psychology, which is a little bit, a little bit weird guys. We're going to have a shorter quarter in here in the third quarter. And I don't want to get out of it without talking about Hank Aaron. So one of the greatest baseball players in the history of the game, um, both on the field and for other reasons, passed away in the last 48 hours. So can you guys, the baseball guys, give us some thoughts on Hank Aaron? Go ahead first, Audie, then I'll jump in.
3: Well, you know, Neil Payne
0: had, a, had a, actually a wonderful article that, that, that described one of the reasons why Hank Aaron was Hank Aaron, was there isn't anyone in the history of hitting who did what he did for as many years as he did it without ever – once being subpar or even average, or he was at the top of the home run hitting crew from almost the minute he went up until practically when he retired. And something that's like 19 kind of straight all 19 years? straight, straight uh, seasons of, of, of essentially elite performances. And I just uh, he sent a note to Neil saying, he says that there's no one else who's ever done that in history of baseball. And when it comes to hitting, that is actually true. But there's one other player who did have 15 years of hitting preceded by four years of being a top pitcher. And and has also has 19 years, (laughs) yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. Well, it's funny you say that. Just this is not an analytics thing, but just you're talking about it it reminds me growing up. I mean, Adi, me, and Eric all grew up the exact same time, and and we were kids in the 70s. And when you talk about home run hitters, there were exactly two and only two that were ever talked about it was Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron, and that was it. I mean, there wasn't like a raft of guys you talked about, it was like these are the if you're gonna like. Throw around names; those were the guys, That's and um, we were just at the very end of Hank Aaron's career. So tell t- tell us more about tell us more about his greatness as a hitter.
3: Eric, you want to? Yeah. Uh, well, to me, actually, I've never thought that. I just think it, it was kind of like um, on the multi-dimensional space. I've always evaluated Hank Aaron. Here's what I mean: he not only hit 755 home runs, which is a lot. Um, you have to do it. You, have, you know, if you hit 40 a year. For 19 years, that's what you get to 760. But also, 3,771 hits. I think it's third most of all time. Mm -hmm. 2,297 RBIs. Number one all time. Mm -hmm. 2,174 runs. I think it's second or third. I think Ricky Henderson might have broken his record for runs, but I'm not sure. Also, I didn't even realize, 240 stolen bases. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. when I evaluate Hank Aaron, to me, actually, at any given time, Was he the best home run hitter? No. Was he the best hitter? No. Was he the best RBI guy? No. But it's one of those things where you go out into this five, six, seven dimensional, multi-dimensional space and Hank Aaron's at the 98th percentile of every single one of these dimensions. And therefore, when you measure it in totality, you're like, Oh, my God. It's, oh, my God. It's yeah. amazing. It's but nuts. I don't think anybody but... thinks on any one dimension he was the greatest who ever played, or maybe even during his era. Because, again, the early part of his era, it was him, you know, you have to compare him to Mickey Mantle or, you know, or no. Willie Mays or others. And so it, that's a hard comparison set.
0: He listen. He wasn't. He never hit over fifty home runs, which is always one of the knocks against him. I mean, a great home run hitter is supposed to hit sixty, or certainly fifties. Um, he's in many ways uh, similar to Mike Trout. I actually would point them out as similar um, because Mike Trout doesn't have the highest uh, average. He doesn't have the most home runs or the most stolen bases, or isn't the best fielder. When you when you put them all together, he's in that top group. On a whole bunch of dimensions, which makes him stick out ridiculously in that multi-dimensional space.
4: And I and I think the longevity of it. I mean, I think Mike Trout. It's it's incredible. Mike Trout. Yeah. Mike Trout has been able to do what he's done for so many years, and not everybody's heard about him because he doesn't play on like a really high-profile team. But he's been doing this consistently for so many years already. And if he does it for like another decade, then he's Hank Aaron. Then he's level. maybe an Air, a Hank Aaron's. But sort that's just to story.
0: show you how ridiculous Hank Aaron yeah. was. Yeah.
3: By way, my it. favorite my favorite summary comment about Hank Aaron is you take away his seven hundred and fifty-five home runs and he still has three thousand hits. <laughs> that's a great <laughs> that is a great observation.
0: Tell, but I will tell, say, I mean, Hank Aaron's Hank Aaron's status as a home run hitter. Is really exceptional. That's true. He never hit fifty, but hitting forty for in the forties for so many years in a row—that's actually quite quite. Including remarkable. at
3: age thirty-nine.
0: Including at age thirty-nine, Mike Trout is not that kind of home run hinder. He doesn't do any one thing even at that level as uh, what Hank Aaron did for home runs.
2: And and he held the record. I mean, I, I, I don't know what, what would this what what statistical quality would this be that how long a record stands. So. um he held the record from whenever he retired. In the well, 19, of,
3: he held it from uh, 1974, he broke the record, until Bonds, well, we could debate whether he broke the record, but he broke yeah. the record in whatever. So he held it for 40, uh, 35, 40 years, but so did yeah. Ruth. You know, Ruth held it from whatever.
2: Well, exactly. Those two—that—that says. I mean, how long a record stands says something about the extremity of it.
4: It's true, but it also says something a little bit, and it's interesting because it kind of goes in the opposite direction with what I'm about to say. Is that you know, if the game kind of changes, that often makes a record more or less reachable. You know, and, and interestingly enough, Hank Aaron's record probably, if baseball hadn't changed, would have stood even longer because you know we kind of w- he did this bef- before the real home run era, at least you know the modern home run era. No PEDs, he's still the home run
3: king. There's no doubt in my mind; he's still the home run king.
4: You look at like 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 a more unbreakable record that I think exists in baseball is how many how many like complete games like or how many no hitters that no
3: one can throw. Seven. Seven. Seven eight, eight.
4: I, I can't imagine another pitcher coming close to that, if only because the game's changed such that, I mean, complete games, all the complete game records. Yeah, they pull them out when pitchers they're in the are eight probably eight. done. <laughs> right,
2: right. All right. Well, we lost a legend this week. Good to reflect on what he did and a great reminder of um, the standard that guy set for the,
3: the top of tournament. the tier one Hall of Famers. That's yeah. right, that's right.
2: <laughs> all right, guys. That has been uh, the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one more quarter to go. We're going to interview Namita and Nandu Kumar of the Seattle Kraken. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio.
2: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter here. This is our traditionally our interview segment, at least traditionally for the last 10 months. Shane Jensen and I have the pleasure of welcoming to the show Namita Nandukumar. Namita, welcome back. Hello. Glad to see you. Hey, great Excited to see you. To be back. Namita is uh, currently the senior quantitative analyst for the Seattle Kraken she's in the r and d team there if you haven't heard, the Kraken is the uh, latest expansion team out of the NHL and they um are for- they're formed long before they're actually playing so they're going they're going to kick off next season but they've got a long ramp up time build a team. Namita was one of the earliest employees but Namita's roots with us go further back her roots with Philadelphia go further back the Kraken stole her from the Philadelphia Eagles Um, she had what many people would have thought would be the dream job why would you leave the dream job Navita she was an analyst with the Eagles when she landed straight out of Penn undergrad because she's such a star and when she was at Penn she worked some with my buddy Shane here and a little bit with other folks in the stats department anyway Namita, uh, we've had you on the show before we've had you in the studio always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, Where are you to begin with? my, My vague sense is that you haven't actually moved to Seattle because of this crazy COVID thing, or at least that it was delayed
1: yeah I'm actually still in the Philly area still in South Jersey with my family um, okay. I was planning on moving to Seattle last March but uh, as right. everyone might remember March is also when the pandemic happens so then I extended my stay uh, in the area a bit longer been working remotely um, on West Coast time which is very nice because I get to sleep in every day <laughs>
2: yeah, <right.
1: laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. I should be moving within the next few months uh, because the summer is the expansion draft and I definitely have to be Seattle
2: for that okay so that's that's that seems like a critical part for team building and roster building at the very least tell us a little bit about that we so one we want to talk some hockey with you we'll circle back and talk some football Uh, when you were working with the Eagles it was kind of a a well-known secret that even though you had this fantasy job in the NFL your true love (laughs) was hockey (laughs) So we want to do both. um, But tell us about the expansion draft and tell us about the process of building this roster from scratch. It's such a neat enterprise.
1: Well, first of all, let me just say that my official line is that I love both sports equally. And I think it would have genuinely it would have been very hard for an NHL team to poach me from the Eagles because I am a lifelong Eagles fan. Right. Uh, but it turns out the only thing cooler than working for your hometown team potentially is working for a team that doesn't exist yet. So that is but
2: but why is that so cool? Like what why why is that so appealing?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's just the, the idea of building the team from scratch and, and you know, I, we can go into the details of the expansion draft a little bit from the logistical perspective, but it's just, you know, essentially, I mean, I like to joke that it's stealing a player um, from every team aside from Vegas because they were also a recent expansion team. Mm-hmm. Um, under some constraints, you know, teams are allowed to protect either seven forwards, three defensemen and one goalie or eight skaters and one goalie um, subject to some sort of like salary exposure constraints and other things. Um, but you know they they get to make their protection list, and then essentially everyone else, aside from some of the the really young players that they might have just drafted, um, is fair game for us to okay. steal. Um, okay. And then we cobbled together a roster from that and have to kind of make sure, you know, we're balancing things, taking, you know, enough forwards, enough defensemen, enough goalies to uh, ice a roster. Um, I was almost about to say field a roster. This is where like, <laughs> right. I, feel like I just like mix up my football and hockey sure. uh, terms all the time. But yeah, so um, it's, it's just like the world's coolest optimization problem, honestly.
2: And, and a complicated one because it's not this passive exercise with the other teams. Right? They're being super strategic, presumably, about who they put out there. One, one other relevant question, the, where does the, the amateur draft sit relative to the expansion draft? Because these are the two critical parts for you, no?
1: Yeah. So the amateur draft is basically right after um, the expansion draft. So it's like a a really busy week for us. So, you know, as as you guys know, I love uh, kind of the the amateur draft and and, uh, doing analysis for that. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's just um, back to back, like, really crucial drafts to sort of build our first ever roster. Although one thing I will say about the amateur draft is that um, in hockey, it is a little bit different in terms of when you expect players to play. I think right. in football, you know, when you're right. drafting these college guys, you do expect them to, you know, show up in your, on your roster in a big way, like pretty much right away um, in in hockey, it is a lot more future-minded. So we sort of would expect more of the expansion draft players to to really comprise our our initial roster okay. and, and develop those younger guys as
2: well. That makes sense. So let's talk a little bit more about this because I have a feeling that if we waited much longer, you would you would get more closed mouthed about it. So <laughs> um, one, one thing, it, it, I, I remember that the Vegas expansion team kind of screwed every other expansion team for life in terms of expectations. You know, back in the day, nobody expected anything from an expansion team. The Buccaneers started out 0-26, the Super Bowl, whatever, 55 we're in now. Buccaneers started out zero and twenty six their first two years, Um, but that's kind of out the window now because Vegas went. They went how far? They went to the Cup Finals. Is that right? So they they were the number two team as an expansion team. It's absurd. Was the the draft was somehow not done right that year, right? Like it was too easy for them or something. What were the rules then and, and did they tweak them now? And
1: well, I, you know, the rules are going to be basically the same for us. They are. Okay. subject to some, you know, pro rating of games cutoffs, let's say. Um, and it, it's interesting that people always mention that because it, it's fun to kind of look back because if you look back, At at the time, I think just, and and this, you know, at the time I was not like an NHL analyst. I was just a fan kind of keeping track of stuff. But I think it was clear that, you know, it wasn't the sense right after their draft that they had swindled everyone. I think- still did not necessarily have, you know, sky high expectations. And then obviously they went and and shocked the world. So um, yeah, I think certainly, you know, maybe I'll harken back to like a a Wharton uh, saying that I remember learning in like my freshman year of like under promise and over deliver. It's, Mm -hmm. it's harder Mm -hmm. for us to under promise given what Vegas has done, but I think also very inspiring um, to look at this story because, you know, one of the things that I really feel strongly about is like the, there are some kind of underrated players on a lot of different rosters that if we give it, give them the opportunity um, to have a larger role to do more, you know, maybe they'll, they'll take that and, and run with it. So mm-hmm. that's the hope anyway. And then we'll see mm-hmm. what happens. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. I just, I mean, I, I think like an expansion job, to- draft must be like you know an analytics person's so like it's it's the dream in the sense that like you know i mean for sure. most you know analytics operations i assume on any professional team you're like well we have one or two slots that we maybe would look to replace players with and so let's evaluate what players are out there and try and figure out which ones are under or overvalued and you get to do that for the entirety of the team and your choice set isn't just all free agents it's like you know half of the players in the nhl you not the not the necessarily the all the good players in the NHL because they're protected, but you've got so many choices, basically. Um, so I, I, would, I would assume just the logistical operation is a much higher, like, a, a greater magnitude in terms of complicated. I guess what my question is, when Vegas did this a couple years ago, do you think, like, were there things that you think that they did particularly well? You know, you don't have to get into specific, but things in general that they did particularly well that you guys are looking to emulate, or was... You know, was it mostly just that they kind of got lucky in who they appraised as far as under overvalued?
1: Uh, I think, you know, maybe the the broad thing that I would say, and and this kind of goes along with my reputation as like an amateur draft uh, person as well is like, I think some of the younger players that they selected, you know, really ended up showing a lot of potential and a lot of success. So, um, you know, that's always something to keep in mind that when you're looking at younger players, you know, they might, especially might not have shown all they can do at the NHL level yet. So that's definitely something we're keeping in mind. But also, of course, you know, you love to have the veteran experience as well. So it's all trying to find that right balance. And I think trying to, you know, if you want to think of it as, as weighted coin flips as well, trying to flip enough coins and with all of these picks that some of them, you know, end up working out really well.
2: Mm-hmm. The, we call it a draft, but is there anything sequential about it or is it all just kind of same simultaneously just reveal that what players are available and you guys decide what to do. What's the time between the revelation and you're having to make your choices?
1: Oh, God, i it's like uh, it's a couple days. i I forget okay. the exact number of hours, but um, it's just a couple days uh, that we have after um, getting the lists from every team. So that's where you know, it's another interesting piece of it is that we have to kind of be ready for anything in terms totally. of what teams do. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's not set in stone kind of who they would protect even uh to to where we can then decide, okay, these are the players that are gonna be available. It's like, no, we don't even know who they're gonna protect. We <laughs> know if the player's gonna be available or not. So we kind of have to be ready for anything in terms of what teams do and then what we do conditional on that.
2: Yeah. Namita, I would think you would like game this thing out. I mean you, you yeah, would run you should, you should run sims you should run sims, right? War games where everybody else plays like a team and y'all decide what to do. You have to figure out what process you're you're gonna be so under the gun for these 48 hours you have or whatever it is that y'all need to have come up with a process. This is utterly, completely fascinating. Yeah. And I agree with Shane, this is so much fun. Yeah.
4: And I mean, I, I guess, you know, I, I do feel like it's like a, it's usually like a once in generation kind of moment. So there's, it's hard to kind of look at precedence. And we, of course, in this case, we can harken back a little bit to the Vegas experience. Like I, I you were probably closely watching their expansion draft. Were, and, and in terms of the revealing of the, did, were there a bunch of teams that kind of made, you know, unpredictable, or at least like what, what, you know, ahead of time would not have been predicted kind of moves in terms of what players they protect. Cause I, I understand that there's of course technically uncertainty involved in who gets protected and who doesn't, but team to team, is there actually a lot of, is it just one or two players that are kind of uncertain or was there decisions that were kind of across the board?
1: Right. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, there were a lot of, uh, I think a, a good amount of teams that I think, made decisions that people didn't expect i think another feature of that was kind of making side deals with vegas of like you know don't take this player and and we'll kind of give you a pick or something like that so you know that's also another way to Mm. um you know get value out of this so uh, yeah it's just it's really exciting and i think uh like i said we have to be ready for anything and and ready to listen to any offer and and decide whether it makes sense for us
2: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the team building part of or the, 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 the staff building part of this exercise and, and and more generally about how the Seattle community is reacting to the crack and how much support and love are you guys getting in, out there yet.
1: I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I'm not even in the Seattle area and I can already see how excited fans are, um, for this to happen. Uh, it's just, you know, it's, I mean, I know, I knew that Seattle fans are are super, super passionate. Um, especially, you know, when the Seahawks kept beating the Eagles in recent (laughs) years, but, uh, it's, it's another thing entirely to have it on my side now. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I think everyone's really excited, really vocal about it. Um, you know, especially when on like social media, I can see whenever the team account is like interacting with, with fans. And, and certainly I I know that the the season ticket sales have been going phenomenally and there's just so much interest even in spite of, you know, the, the pandemic and, and all of the difficult situations. So, you know, I think my hope is kind of, uh, I know that like, you know, I, as much as I love my job, I know like there's a lot more important issues in the world right now. But my hope is, is that the Kraken can kind of be this beacon of, of like excitement and happiness right. like, for a lot of people, especially in the Seattle area, as something to look forward to these days.
2: Yeah, for sure. It gives you one more thing. And it actually, it you, you actually timed it beautifully, right? Because you imagine being an expansion team. This year, when no one's in the stands, versus next year, it's gonna be the first time people have been in the stands in two years. People will be especially excited. um This may be something you can't talk about. Can you talk about how big a staff you guys on the analytics side of things? Did you negotiate and media on the way in? Did you say, "Yeah, I'll come, but I need this salary and I need staff of this"? <laughs> did you throw it down to me? Yeah, I got, I got to have some resources, man, and I'm not just talking about a computer.
1: Honestly, that was, and maybe I didn't use those words, but that was definitely something that I had in mind, you know, because the Eagles, you know, had one of the bigger analytics staffs in the NFL and and there was a lot of help, I think, especially on kind of the database management side of things. So I didn't want to have to come into a team and have to do three jobs. Right. So, but one thing that was very reassuring, you know, my boss, Alex, who has been on the show, uh, Mm -hmm. as I remember, Mm -hmm. um, you know, she's put together a great staff, you know, it's, it's me and Danny Chu are the analysts. Um, and then we have a great data engineer, John, uh, and also uh, developer, Eric, who basically turns all of our, you know, spreadsheets essentially into a really, really nice interface that uh, everyone in hockey ops can kind of mm-hmm. see all of our hard work, which is also, I think, a, a really important and really underrated um, job.
2: Right. Right. And you are lucky in that you saw how some of those pieces fit together in a professional franchise and in a way that mostly doesn't exist in football. You know, you were one of a relatively small number of teams that have that. Baseball has it kind of overrun. Basketball right. has a fair bit. But you happen to have been in one of the few buildings in the NFL that gave you a nice little example. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the football side of things. It's a fun time of year. Um, you just posted uh, an article on 538. That happened to, you know, you weren't lauding the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but you were using them as a point of departure. You were using them as kind of a distinct approach to defense. And then they went out and did a pretty good number on the Packers. How did you feel about the games this weekend? Any observations? Um, I know you're a football fan, but any observations as an analyst or how things went down on Sunday?
1: Yeah, I think whenever you like post an article that thousands of people have clicked on, according to Twitter analytics, you hope that like the things that you said in it are correct. So I was definitely um, checking on those like early down, like run pass splits for especially the Bucks and the Packers. And I mean, I think right away, you could see that, like, even though, you know, Tom Brady was enjoying like incredible success on third down against the Packers, like, Pretty much every first and ten was like a two yard run from Leonard Fournette, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it it mm-hmm. kind of went to my point that like, you know, Ooh. when you're facing the Packers, even though I, you know, I think their their secondary was struggling and Kevin King certainly did not have his best day, like. Tampa was running a lot even before they built up their big lead just because that's what you do against the Packers and, mm-hmm. and I think on the flip side uh, and, and obviously game script ended up demanding it but you know the, the Packers were going pretty pretty pass heavy on the other end, um, obviously a lot of other interesting stuff in that game, like the pass protection that Aaron Rodgers was getting was (laughs) not ideal. Um, Some of the officiating, and then of course the famous fourth and goal uh, Mm -hmm. field goal at the end of that game, Uh, Mm -hmm. very controversial. So a lot of interesting stuff. Um, And, and, you know, I watched the Chiefs and Bills as well, but I think Mm -hmm. that game can be much more neatly summed up into just the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes are insanely, insanely
2: good. Yeah. <laughs> Patrick Mahomes is healthy, and that's really all you need to know. Think about that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's, it, it's so frustrating. If I, I wasn't pulling against them, but when you do pull against a quarterback like that, it's just so frustrating to be so close in so many circumstances and then to not get him and have him convert. I mean, when, when I was growing up, the guy who did that to us all the time, I was in Texas, was Terry Bradshaw. He was a super mobile quarterback, and he would, he would just always get himself out of trouble and convert it into some crazy thing. And it's just, it's just maddening. Um, talk about the, talk up a little bit about how you think about the edge coaches provide, because I don't think the Bucks head coach is the most highly thought of from the analytics community. And yet they, you know, they, they're, they're winning and 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 they're clicking off against some teams that do have more analytics forward coaches. So I'm just curious how you think about that. And you were, you were looking at their, you were looking at their um, tendencies real closely. And, you know, the Rams have really been lauded this year for how they've really emphasized trying to take away the pass. And that seems to play towards the conventional wisdom that it's all about passing these days. And here come the bucks and it's all about like taking, a taking, taking away the run. Right. So what, what's the, t- talk to us about how you think about the role of head coaching and the edges they provide and the role of analytics. And-
1: yeah. I mean, I, I think this is where, you know, analytics, at least, especially in the public sense, and even including my article, you know, I'm not exempting myself from this. I think we're looking at kind of a, a pretty broad, uh- aspect of it just something like you know run past splits and uh even in-game decision making as boiled down to just you know are you going for it on fourth down but like there's a whole host of other things that coaches are doing and and having to decide about you know formations route combinations things like that um you know i won't even pretend to be a, a defensive expert uh because i am truly not but there there's just so much that that goes into that that is really not being captured By the analytics. And and then that's not even really because analysts are like terrible at their jobs or anything, although, of course, listening to domain experts is always good. It's just more that like we don't really have the data, I think, to Mm -hmm. capture a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I had access, obviously, to to more data uh, in my previous job. But and then I also think stuff like the big data bowl, um, where you know tracking data is shared publicly is kind of another way to sort of dig deeper. But I think, you know, right now. In kind of looking at these sort of more narrow um, questions of like, you know, who's passing the most relative to expectations or um, who's going on fourth downs the most relative to expectations. I mean, it, it's a really fairly pretty small part of kind of everything that goes into coaching.
2: And I'll just sort
4: of say, oh, oh sorry, uh, just uh, that I think another thing that makes it hard to kind of, I think, guess, you know, kind of analyze kind of retrospectively a lot of these kind of matchup type things or, or you know, these outcomes is that, you know, every coach, you know, I think, uh, you know, really good coaches are aware, not just of the kind of general trends of their defense and their general strategies, like, you know, we're more of a stop the run defense, but they they have to be at least somewhat unpredictable in their game plan anyway, because, you know, the oppo- They know the opposing team is going to be at least coaching their scheming and players towards the general trends they've observed in in, in that defense. And so I think it's it's got to be very tough for a defensive coordinator, for example, to actually organize a defensive game plan that speaks to their strengths while still being a little bit unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And it's also got to be hard to kind of analyze that because you don't know exactly in terms of the decision making how much was sort of like speaking to strengths versus trying to kind of, you know, uh, also try and be unpredictable.
2: It's an interesting point. It reminds me of uh, Hermsmeyer's column earlier this year, again, 538. We're just shills for 538 here. <laughs> Hermsmeyer had a column a couple months ago on the predictability of the number of guys in the box over expected, mm-hmm. And um, he found that it was quite persistent. One of the more persistent defensive stats that you'll see. Yeah. So I'm sure there's different coaches try that unpredictability in different ways and to different degrees, um but it's a it's a great it's a great point Shane how, how you know I agree with everything both of y'all just said but it is a little bit unsatisfying because it feels a little bit like you take that too far and then you kind of chuck the models out it's like we're just you analysts are just kind of wasting your time because you don't have all the context in the media you, you can't you can't put that in your little in your little spreadsheet there so let's take an example the one that just blew Twitter up last night um, and I happen to be in the camp I don't think it's that hard to be in this camp but where i think the mcdermott decisions were worse than uh than the green bay decision but let's just take the green bay decision where you're 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 down there you're down eight it's fourth and eight or whatever it was on the eight yard line and a few minutes left and they decided to kick a field goal instead of go for it so my understanding of the models is that so the, so a lot of people have the intuition that that was crazy i mean you got you got to go for the test down there try to get the tie. the
4: immediate reaction certainly was very telling that almost okay occurred, yeah
2: so t- football and like football Twitter blows up and uh, people start, you know, quoting models. And, the, and one, one, I don't know if this was Ben Baldwin's or not, but one of them was like 10% chance of winning if you go for the, if you go for it on fourth, 9% chance if you go for the field goal. So it's a small difference in absolute terms. Now, Adi, our buddy points out in relative terms, even by that model, that's a 10% chance you're giving up, you're giving up 10, 10%, 10% um, improvement in your, or 11% improvement on your win probability. Um. Some other models had a little bit different. Then some of the criticism is, yeah, well, here's a criticism of models. like That's the league average, and you weren't playing a league average team. You were giving the ball back to Tom Brady. My God, I mean, you had to be a lower chance of getting the ball back, that kind of thing. But Namita, what value do we have in models if we can just kind of sweep them away with context and additional considerations and say, but, 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 the coach can do whatever they want to because, of course, the coach can do whatever they want to. And, of course, any given circumstance – some detail might be there that turns over the model. But if you have that every single circumstance, then why are we doing models?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great point. And I think, you know, what I will say is, like like I said, I I think we have a a limited sort of number of applications right now in football that we're building models for. But it doesn't mean those models themselves are bad, right? Like, you know, these uh, fourth down models are incorporated Incorporating a lot of features within them, I you know I think the tricky part is like especially when you get to end of game situations. I think the precise sort of model construction and model tuning and how you're actually incorporating those factors actually does end up making a big difference uh, in terms of the exact numbers that you're seeing. Um, I mean, frankly, I, I think you know there's just it's it's a great baseline, and I and I think my hope honestly is that when coaches go against that sort of baseline that they don't always just go against it on the conservative side. I think that's what I would like to see moving right. forward. That's interesting.
2: That's if you're interesting.
1: going to go against it, sometimes I would like them to even be more aggressive than usual. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't just want to see them always discounting it in the sense of like, well, we have to do the the conservative thing. I mm-hmm. think, you know, that's really what would show me that they're sort of appropriately contextualizing it is that they're using it at a ba- as a baseline and then sometimes being more conservative, but sometimes being more aggressive. Mm-hmm.
4: And do you think, kind of, some of these recent examples? I mean, certainly the Eagles' success a few years in the Super Bowl, Andy Reid's success a couple, you know, last week, for example. Do you think those kind of, and the failures of Matt LaFleur this week and, and the Bills, do you think that those are enough of, you know, we've talked a little bit on this in past shows, like those kind of, you know, they're just specific anecdotal cases, but sometimes those can actually drive movements in the sense that they're high profile enough that it kind of gives, a little bit more precedent to coaches trying unconventional things in the future.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was kind of amazed, I think, at, at the response to LaFleur's Lef- decision, both just, you know, in, in terms of fans on Twitter. And also, like, I mean, you even have Aaron Rodgers saying mm-hmm. uh, after the fact that he expected to go on fourth down. I think, you know, that really shows you how far we've come to where. <laughs> now all of a sudden it, it's just thought of as commonplace that you would do that um so I think yeah all of that is is sort of combining together I mean Andy Reid is an interesting one because you know as um amazing as he is at so many parts of coaching, I think, you know, in a lot of ways he was thought of to be sort of more conventional and traditional about fourth downs. And then he went and did that crazy fourth and one with Chad Henney last week. And it's just like, whoa, like, I mean, this is really, um, happening everywhere.
4: No, I mean, it is, if I'm not used to lauding Andy Reed for his late game management <laughs> of the game, right? I mean, this is not something we're used to doing. And I mean, certainly again, maybe the important context for him becoming more bold is having the person. So now that he kind of knows will execute it, oh, sure. though, it's interesting. He did run that with Chad Henning, which must have been a little bit more uncertain than his usual quarterback.
1: That's a that's a fun point uh, that I, I like to think about, uh, too, is just like, you know, there's uh, sort of qualitative ways that you can really um, justify these things as well. I think people always like to say, oh, you know, why would you go for it? Like, trust your defense. It's like, well, you can flip that around and say, trust your offense. And for someone like Andy Reid, you know, he should certainly trust his offense. And he knows that, I think.
2: Right. You know, another thing that, that, that struck me about the decision last night is the, the argument that, and, and, and um, um, McDermott said it after the game, he said he didn't want to go to end the halftime without getting some points, that it would have been disappointing. And if you talk to the, the, one of the, the real kings of this fourth down philosophy is the high school coach in Arkansas, Kevin Kelly who's won all these state championships and he's got this very pure philosophy about always going forward and forth down. We had Kelly on the show, I don't know, three years ago or so. And he talks about his team is prepared to understand that that's what they're doing. And with that comes an understanding that sometimes it's not going to work out, but they're not, they're not going to be disappointed or let down. They're not going to collapse whenever they don't get that conversion because they know that's what they're going to do. And over a series of a game and especially over a series of a season, it pays off and but but it requires that there's a, it becomes a cultural thing, right? It becomes a philosophical thing. If you only do it every now and then then you're scared and you're scared how your team is going to react. But if you have it as a philosophy and you have them ready to go, then you're much more able to take those chances. I mean, and I think the whole world thinks Pulaski should have gone for board touchdowns as to us field goals when you're that much. of. I said Pulaski um, um, McDermott in that situation. Anyway, there's, there's a, there's a culture around it that supports that kind of analytics um, attitude. Namita circling back to, to hockey. And just as we wrap up here, we're talking about fourth down decisions in the NFL and, you know, Romer wrote the paper on that like 17 years ago. Right. So this, this is like the canonical analytics decision. The conversation is still evolving in the NFL. What are some of the canonical analytics Decisions, potentially analytics-informed decisions, in in the NHL.
1: Well, I I think the closest analog you're going to find there is probably pulling the goalie. Um, But at the same time, you know, this is honestly, it's like not one of my favorite topics. Even though I'm certainly firmly on the side of the analytical argument that you know sometimes you have to pull earlier, sometimes you have to make riskier decisions that. You know, you're probably going to lose, but also before you were probably going to lose anyway. So, you know, that mm-hmm. that's always something to keep in mind. But, you know, I think the, the thing about it really is that hockey analytics is so much more concerned, I, I think, with the sort of individual personnel evaluation rather than okay. The kind of in-game strategy so mm-hmm. you know seeing a lot of uh models trying to basically precisely estimate the individual impact on goals or expected goals on or shots uh when a player is on the ice mm-hmm. um And so, you know, that's definitely interesting and and that's kind of come a long way from the initial sort of just counting up Corsi or shots, I should say, Mm -hmm. um, on either side. Um, So, yeah, I'm actually curious to see. I think, you know, we'll have a lot to learn, uh, especially from guys like our video analyst, Tim, who uh, had a lot of success with the caps. Like, I am curious to see, you know, what we can do. Um, in terms of in-game analysis to really help out because I think in, in hockey, especially like the, the kind of personnel evaluation side of analytics is pretty well-defined, but um, th- there's probably more that can and should be done in terms of the in-game stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, one last question on the personnel side and coming all the way back to our expansion draft conversation, which we started with, to what extent do y'all, will y'all have a philosophy of the kind of players you you want, the kind of play, not um, I mean, there's probably a lot of dimensions that you care about, but presumably, well, one, educate us a little bit, Namita. What are the the dimensions along which a team might vary? So I assume size and speed are the most obvious ones, and offensive-mindedness versus defensive-mindedness, possibly. But how do you think about the dimensions? And I suppose your coaching staff must have a philosophy – that's gonna drive how you look through these expansion draft rosters. And I wonder to what extent that philosophy has got has got any analytics foundation underneath.
1: Sure. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting question that I'm not even sure I entirely know how to answer because like, those are the conversations that we're having, right. As you know, Mm -hmm. when we're sort of looking at a team, we're looking at players that might be available and, and maybe, you know, they're completely different types of players, you know, one's more offensively minded, one's more defensively minded and, and really thinking about, you know, what are we going to value? I think, uh, an interesting dimension, uh, that teams do kind of, uh, Vary a lot in is sort of maybe line construction and and whether you have you know a fourth line that's more of like a, a traditional grinder type and really defensively minded and you don't expect them uh, to have any offensive impact versus whether you try to have four more balanced lines mm-hmm. where, where mm-hmm. everyone is expected to kind of you know play on both sides of the ice. You know, that's something um, that I think you know there's differences in and then also we've seen mm-hmm. more of a shift to kind of. Uh, uh, having four more skilled lines, I think in in recent years, so mm-hmm. that's definitely kind of an interesting.
2: Well, you can't. Thought. You can't I think on as,
1: the defensive you can't side, fight. you know, you can't um, fight as
2: much anymore, right? Didn't that fourth line used to have a bunch of guys that would fight? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Certainly less fighting now. And then uh, I think on the defensive side, what's interesting is sort of can we see players who um, are maybe I think trying to make a lot of plays and then sometimes they also might make mistakes that they then get crucified for versus players who maybe might seem like safer options because they're not really trying Mm -hmm. to make any plays but then they end up you know, being worse off in terms of impacts. I think that's probably something that I feel pretty strongly about. Uh, And it's not just about defensemen. It's about any players. It's like, you know, I want to give credit uh, and analytical tools want to give credit to players who are really trying to make plays and sometimes they don't work out, but Mm -hmm. on balance over the course of a season, Mm -hmm. having those types of players is going to help you out more than those who are always just going to try to play safe and then maybe get absolutely shelled by shots. But it doesn't really look like they've made a specific mistake So,
2: um, you know, yeah. Super interesting. From an economics perspective, it's almost like you're talking about the shape of the utility function. Is it more risk-seeking or more Mm risk-averse? And I can imagine there for some positions, it's helpful to have um, a more risk-averse utility function where you want to avoid big mistakes. But for other positions, it's important to be tolerant of some mistakes because the upside is so good. But to talk that through as an organization and to have a distinct philosophy on it seems like it'd be a real advantage. Another advantage of starting from scratch um, up there in Seattle. Awesome. All right, Namita, we should let you go. Um, thank you. We could keep you in this for a long time. Um, really wish you the best with uh, getting things off the ground and um, even getting out there. So you've been waiting to get out there for almost a year now. So you'll get out there, have fun for the next year, getting ready for um, pulling this team together. But it's been a pleasure having you here for Shane um, and everybody else. Appreciate you giving us some of your time.
1: No problem. Always a pleasure.
2: Namita Nandikumar, Kumar, she is the senior quantitative analyst for the r and d team of the expansion Seattle Kraken. They're coming to a television near you about a year from now, in the 20, maybe a little less than a year, now, nine months from now in the 20, 21 22 NHL year. Namita was an analyst for the Philadelphia Eagles before the Kraken stole her away from Alec Hallaby and friends down the road. And before that, she was a stats undergrad at the University of Pennsylvania. She is a star in the world of sports analytics. Namita, thank you. All right. That has been four quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We do the full two hours here on SiriusXM every week. For the whole team, my buddy Shane Jensen right there, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, the boss man, Matty Dats, the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.